Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We are delighted to be joined by Tom Chivers today. So with COVID-19, science has been in the news perhaps more than ever this last 12 months or so. This has brought to life lots of debates around science, politics, the media, society, and the interaction between all of these. And so to make sense to this, who better to join us than science writer Tom Chivers? So Tom, welcome and please introduce me. Uh, yeah, hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Tom Chivers. I am a science writer, as you say. I'm also science editor at unheard.com and I occasionally write books about science and related things, uh, which I'll attempt to plug as we go through the piece, as we, go, as we carry on talking. But yeah, hello. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And <clears throat> Steve, welcome back and uh, good to see you and thanks very much for joining a pleasure as always and welcome tom thank you okay so tom let's start by plugging that book that you just talked about so could you tell us a little bit about well the new one yeah sure uh so my cousin uh, david is an economist at durham and he and i decided we'd write a book about how it's, it's called how to read numbers and it's basically about how um Numbers go wrong in the media. The, the sort of the the ways in which uh, numbers can be distorted or cherry picked or presented out of context, and you know deliberately or otherwise, and how that can uh, how that can mislead people, and then what a few simple simple steps for how you can sort of try and sort of be on the alert for it in various different ways. Um, it comes out in oh, about three weeks from when we're recording this, so March the eighteenth or nineteenth. And yeah, I, I I genuinely think it's. Um, pretty timely because this last year obviously everyone has had to suddenly get really up to speed with understanding statistics and numbers and these sort of concepts like r and uh, you know that we just had no you know had had no uh, sort of context for before and, I th- and it's it's really sort of revealed i think how important it is to be a bit literate when you're reading the news and um hopefully this will help a few people sort of get better at that Excellent. Well, Steve, would you like to just come in on the subject of AI? Um, Yeah, Tom, I know that your last book was on the topic of AI, and I was reflecting a bit on uh, a podcast we did end of last year with Jonathan Porters, and he he mentioned, uh, I think his parting line for us was was something like uh, that uh, AI and climate change will impact our our daily lives much more in the years, you know, in in, in the years nearly, you know, to come than Brexit or um, the pandemic will. I just wondered if you had any reflections on like um, top thing, top ways in which AI might impact our lives in the next couple of years. Um, Well, one thing I will say is that there's a, there's a, there's a great line. I can't remember from which particular AI pioneer it was uh, Marvin Minsky or someone like that. Um, Which was as soon as it works, they don't call it AI anymore. And uh, I think that is, you know, all these things that we see all around us all the time, um, Google uh, phone, you know, Google Android phones that unlock using your face and all these sort of things. Face recognition, right? Facial recognition is now it's, it's available on apps that you get for free and which use it to put a, um, a funny little, you know, to put filters on that you can put dog ears or whatever, or, um, you know, make, make yourself appear as a, uh, a cat on zoom calls and that was i mean 10 years ago that was the stuff of dreams that was just getting uh, computers to 
recognize human faces to sort of uh, do it in real time with video and things it's just uncanny for to someone who'd be sort of speaking from 2005 2010 sort of time so i think it is worth it is worth sort of being aware of just how much it is transforming things right now because this is you know all these this is just the application of ever bigger data sets and ever more powerful computers to this using the same sort of mechanisms as we were before the sort of deep learning and neural networks and things um so I think it is already transforming the economy in huge ways, just being better, better and better at uh, spotting patterns in noisy data. I remember we um, we spoke once before, Steve, when we were, when I wrote a piece for um, Imperial College London about AI use in medicine and its amazing ability to detect uh, patterns in you know in uh, genome study, genome wide association studies, or in um, uh, radi- radiology imaging, so you know the ability to detect um, uh, cancers and things on scans that humans wouldn't be able to detect, and they are getting about comparably good to the best human experts. Or they were, they were, they were two years ago, whatever it was when we spoke. And I think that is, you know, that 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 is happening right now. Will happen more. The, this last few months, the um, uh, Google. Uh, was it Google? Yeah, well, uh, DeepMind, I should say. This, um, uh, the, as they um, announced that it, it had essentially solved the protein folding problem, which is predicting the shape of a protein from its two-dimensional, the three-dimensional shape of a protein from its, from its two-dimensional sequence of amino acids, which sounds very dry and boring, but is an incredibly difficult sort of computational task because each protein has more possible shapes than numbers of atoms in the universe or some mad number like that. And the... Um, and Lots and lots of, you know, basically the whole of the way the body works is fundamentally dictated by the 3D shapes of proteins. So to make, to work out how our bodies go wrong in various genetic diseases or cancers and in, and the ways of how you make um, various drugs, so you need to make small molecules that fit into these 3D shapes of the proteins. So it's really, really important to learn these things. And that's, again, was unthinkable not very long ago and deep mind has just gone well okay let's apply our uh, our uh, something a bit like image, rec- image image recognition software but also with a bit of their own um alpha go type uh deep learning uh mod uh, systems and they've they've um they've cracked it to incredible ability incredible uh, levels almost immediately and that will on enormous uh areas of medicine in the next five or ten years so i mean i think medicine is the obvious place because there's so much discussion of it but i think it's just an example of the many many different ways in which it will sort of subtly change things all the time in lots of areas in finance in science in um uh just out the technology we hold in our hands and each time it happens it will feel completely normal and natural and we'll stop calling it ai we won't we won't we don't think of tiktok filters as ai but it absolutely w- would have been called that 10 years ago so anyway I, I don't know, it's a bit of a rambling answer but uh, lots of ways i think great well uh, thanks for that <laughs> so i mean science has been front page news over the last year or so ever since the pandemic so what's your reflection on being a science writer over the last year uh well i mean okay there's there's very it's very hard to say this without sign it sounding kind of I don't know, callous, but it's it's been it's been amazing. Like from a point of view of someone who wrote about uncertainty and um, risk and you know com- uh, and uh, and sort of complex science and things. That from a, just from a purely sort of intellectual, from a personal professional point of view, it has been fascinating. I, I, I compared it early in the pandemic to 
a friend who uh, worked on, who did a lot of writing on um, trade and the EU and so on. To, like, this must be like what Bre- this must be what Brexit was like for you, in that suddenly your sort of fairly abstruse corner of knowledge and expertise or sort of contacts and everything suddenly that's headline news and everyone cares about it and suddenly i'm you know the stuff i've been writing for ages is suddenly really important so you know so from you know from a nakedly uh sort of mercenary point of view it's been very it's been good for me professionally but it's also been fascinating because i you know i've been learning in real time as everyone else has been about sort of uh virology and immunology but also about you know um how uh about you know, sort of infectious disease epidemiology the spread of how how these things spread and how um the numbers work and which numbers matter and all this sort of stuff and you know things like you things like i mentioned are before but that's a, such a central example that this i this this simple idea of how many uh, if you get take it so one person has something whether it's a a um a te- you know uh, a virus or a yawn or an internet meme or a piece of technology or whatever and the number of people who then go who, who are then who then go on to start to have that as well from them how many people catch it from them so you know if uh, if it is an internet meme or if it's a virus or whatever that that number is, is hugely important and it, 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 it affects so many things so i've been i've just found it so interesting and it's been it's been hard sometimes to well, it's been important. Yeah, it's been really important to remind myself sometimes that I'm writing about this, this stuff that is so fascinating to me and is so uh, sort of revealing of so many sort of interesting areas of thought and science is also involved directly involved in many many thousands of people dying really unpleasant deaths and and you know you can get almost gleeful about this this fascinating stuff you're learning and forgetting that actually no this is a horrible thing affecting people in horrible ways. So um, uh, it's had this sort of double-edged aspect and i've had to be really careful i've tried to be careful in my writing of not being you know of trying not to be like look how amazing this is look how exciting it is and then you know the, i mean and sometimes you can be with vaccines and things look at how incredibly this this work has been done with mrna vaccines were had, had never been used before a year ago uh never been, you know, i think there've been one given emergency use um uh, license for Ebola, Ebola but other than that they've just they've never been used and now there are two have been licensed several more are on the way and they have these amazing advantages that they can just be repurposed for for any you know you can you can make them in like a chemical lab rather than having to grow them in cells like other other vaccines and, and it's just been this incredible sort of transformation almost like wartime you know defense spending increases space um uh you know all, all these all these breakthroughs in space and aerospace technology have come from defense spending in much the same way the pandemic has driven on these um uh chemi- these the these medical findings and it has been fascinating to watch but like i say it, it, it has been very it's been too easy for me to get into this excited look how cool this all is aspect and forget that the it's also really dark and horrible so i i've I've been trying to sort of keep myself on a bit of a leash rather than uh, bounce around like an excited child too much. And so sort of widen out from there, Mm. what about the coverage and the debate? So do you think it's been healthy? Mm. So, for example, how we've dealt with uncertainty and risk. And, of course, I think we have to talk about sceptics, whether relatively let's call them more mainstream skeptics whether about mask wearing or lockdown or the um 
more extreme skeptics that it's all made up and it's all a sort of um you know plot to control us but so the specifically about the coverage and the debate around it from a science writer's point of view well i mean the thing is you can't sum it up in one you know there's no there's no one bit of the debate i mean i there is i think for example the bbc has broadly speaking and and, and let's not forget the bbc is the absolute center of um you know still most people get their news from the bbc in the uk and I think it has had a really good pandemic. I think it, in places, it has got things wrong in the sense that scientists got things wrong. Like early in the pandemic, we were told not to wear masks and that masks didn't work and all that sort of stuff. And that is that, but that was the fact that the BBC said that was a failing of expert judgment and, and scientific advice, not the failing of the BBC. And I think they've done a really marvelous job almost throughout of, um, <clears throat> trying to explain in, you know, short clips, complicated concepts about, um, I keep coming back to R because it's such an obvious example, but also about how vaccines work, about what the virus, you know, how viruses uh, spread, what we know about aerosol transmission versus fomite transmission. I think it's been, uh, 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 my, my instinct has been, is that the BBC has covered it pretty well. I think lots of the main, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, of, I think a lot of the specialist science writers that have had a really good, pandemic as well I, I think like tom whipple at the times for instance has had a marvelous a marvelous um time doing really careful in-depth but clear to read uh stuff i think there's and i think there has been lots of really really good really really careful nuanced coverage i think it is very obviously the case that there have also been lots of places where that hasn't been the case and i think there's been a lot of um when, there's been a lot of wishful thinking. I think the vaccine skeptics that you mentioned are an interesting bunch. I think there is there is a small-ish, excuse me, smallish sort of squad of them, most of whom are either generic contrarians who sort of go from topic to topic, saying the mainstream. Uh, beliefs or the the left or whatever is wrong but there are also a few who are people who you've who'd never heard of a few months ago who have some scientific credentials uh and therefore are, are pushed to the fore regularly because they are they are they have give some sort of scientific cover to some of the crazier ideas or less uh, le- less well supported ideas i should probably say more charitably and like I think I, I, I'm, I'm very loath to suggest that any of them, or at least most of them, are doing it out of bad faith exactly. But I do think there comes a point when you, what's that saying? It's um, very hard to convince um, someone of something when their income depends on them not believing it, you know. Um, uh, and I think there are a lot of people who have suddenly become moderately famous possibly got some money out of it but possibly just staked a lot of status and reputation on it and then and then you get so you get um the idea that masks you know uh, that masks are somehow dangerous or lockdowns are worse than you know the lockdown is cure is worse than the covid disease and things and i think that is there was, I think last you know last uh, in in the first lockdown you could make a sort of plausible case that there was some degree or, you know, the, you know, lock, lockdowns obviously are awful and 
unpleasant and you know um it has been really really hard no one's denying that and there was you know there you you could plausibly make an argument that about the you know the trade-offs between the um uh, you know economic trade-offs of the uh uh, of lockdown versus the 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 life the lives lost in the in the disease and I can I can understand that I think actually in the end it was pretty straightforward because it's not as if you were comparing not it's not as if if there was no lockdown everyone would be out doing the same things anyway because this new disease was going around and people were scared so I think you'd have got the economic case anyway or at least large parts of it plus much worse death but nonetheless that would you know that was the um there was this argument that you could have but you would think that if you were trying, if you're making a principled argument about um, the cost of the lockdown versus the co- you know the cost of the virus, and you saw that we're no longer be facing permanent lockdown, but we're going to be slowly coming out of it as the vaccines start to work. You'd think if you were if you're making that argument from a point of prin- you know from um, from a sort of yeah, from on a, on a principle basis and genuinely trying to work out the costs, then you would say, well, now the costs have changed because the vaccine changes. You know, the vaccine means we won't have to lock down indefinitely. Indefinite lockdown versus COVID, you could sort of say, yes, okay, well, sometime we'll have to do it. But now there's been now the vaccines are here. It's a finite, bounded lockdown, and if we come out of it too early, it'll only make it worse. We'll have to do it again. So I think it sort of it it reveals to some degree the fact that people are not thinking not actually doing the cost benefit analysis but simply have found, put themselves into lockdowns are bad masks are bad we are the covid skeptics group and um pushing against you know and pushing against whatever the the, the mainstream sort of uh, position is i should say this is something we all do this isn't some thing unique to any one group of skeptics or deniers or anything like that and i think you can see it on the other side, to some degree, I saw there was a, a um, an editorial, a leader in the Guardian the other day saying, "Well, uh, vaccines aren't a magic bullet, and we still need zero COVID." And that's uh, well, uh, do you really? I mean, this feels like the opposite. You know that you, the, the vaccines are working, and they are as close to a magic bullet as you get in medicine, really. And they are, and they will get us to a, you know the idea that we should just stay locked down until every single case is gone is just implausible and mad and just as mad i think as, as the other kind is uh, but that there's obviously some people who've tied themselves to that position and that you know and obviously the only person who isn't uh um utterly biased and, con- and conflicted and so on is me so everyone else is wrong so it's obviously the point i'm trying to make here so um anyway yes uh, so I, I think i think broadly speaking i'm sorry there's another big rambling answer i think broadly speaking the coverage has been really good um but there have been a few voices that get disproportionately inflated who are saying contrarian things and i think they've got stuck in saying that thing long past it becomes long past the point where it becomes possible to make those arguments in good faith just before i bring steve in i just wanted to pose a question for for both of you really so i i I'd, if am i correct in characterizing your answer as um there are some people who are trying to make a profile of themselves for themselves out of being against something just because there are some people that are for it so i will make a profile out of being against it and a related argument is it has been sometimes characterized that lock the positions on covid whether around skepticism of lockdowns or a pro zero covid position are associated with other political 
alignments, whether on left and right or on leave and remain. Mm. How both of you do you think that the politics is intertwined with the coverage and the debate? Hmm. Uh, well, shall I go first? I don't know. I, th- I think it is it is true that there has been a... Um, it, 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 it fell out quite late in the system, I th- in, in the situation, I think. But I remember in March, April, May last year, there was a real sense of unity, or there seemed to be, you know, as far as I could judge the mood of the nation from a few... And actually, okay, so tell, tell you what, actually... I think this is true in we, we forget that the media isn't the nation, right? Um, and the uh, it is absolutely true that the sort of people who shouted loudly about Brexit or shouted loudly about um, uh, you know uh, uh, yeah probably Brexit is the obvious example, but about various things and on a sort of left right breakdown are now the ones who are shouting loudly on the internet or in comment pages of, of the media, but without having any polls to hand or anything, my understanding from following pollsters a lot on Twitter and sort of engaging with them and from writing a bit about them is that broadly speaking, the British public is very in favour of the lockdowns. And I think that is true across the political spectrum. I think the, um, I think, you know, I'm sure it is less true of Brexiters, Brexit voters than it is of Remain voters. But um, I don't think that is, I don't, I don't think it's a gigantic difference. And I think the, Broadly, yeah. Broadly speaking, lockdown measures have been really popular. I think the um, there has been there is there are indeed yeah. You're right to say there. I I think there are some people who have consciously or otherwise backed themselves into a position where they have to be against anything lockdowny and have decided that masks are poisoning children and every you know whatever. But um, I don't think that's true of the country as a whole. I think as, <clears throat> I think nationwide, most people agree. Uh, that the um, the lockdown measures are are, are necessary. Ma- a large number think they don't go far enough. I think, if anything, as a there is still quite certainly early on there was a the the risks were over the public over uh, overestimated the risks and thought they were at personal risk when it was actually mainly or their children were when when it was actually it was mainly the um, the elderly. So uh, yes, I think in the media there has been a. Um, a pretty a, a lot of the people who were Brexit now you know, or anti you know the climate skeptics the Brexit voter the Brexit um, cheerleaders seem to have sort of segued neatly into COVID skepticism. But I don't think the alignment is quite so clear among people who don't have uh, columns in the media or well followed Twitter accounts. Steve, would you like to come in on this? Yeah, I mean, there's loads, loads to comment on. And Tom drew the uh, climate change comparison. And I think that was one I had in mind, because it felt to me like the debate on COVID very quickly became much like the debate on climate, where the right just kind of said, we don't like this, because it involves also state intervention, don't care about the science, we don't like it anyway. So that's the kind of libertarian type argument that is often talked about. In fact, the left also behaved in a similar way and it kind of said well the science says it's lockdowns it's masks and there's only one way and i i was i wondered actually whether and i understand that reaction but whether for a while at least there was a huge amount of uncertainty and the kind of politicization of it made it very hard and it's probably hard for humans to do this anyway but very hard just to realize we don't know whereas a climate change i think probably we do know it's real it's happening to me a huge issue that that's like decades of consensus on that whereas with covid it was this moving picture um 
and in both those examples politicization doesn't help but i feel like it happened very quickly with covid and that made me sort of in some ways that that it shouldn't have surprised me but i think it did a little bit so i just wanted to uh for and come on to a related topic which is around coverage debate skepticism which is about sources of information so tom in your eyes and as someone who worked who writes for Unheard, and I'm interested partly to speak to you because Unheard carries some excellent writers, but can a blogging site on the internet, for example, um, be held in as much, in as high reputation, as high esteem, as high amount of trustworthiness as certain other more established sources. Now, the reason I, I'm curious about this is about the wider issue of the sources of information. So where we should look for data we can trust on risk of transmission around surfaces, the effectiveness of masks, other issues beyond our usual knowledge that, in a way, unheard is a case study. Here's a new, relatively new, sort of established platform. So how should we treat and approach sources of information? Uh, it's a really complicated question. Um, so, I mean, the trouble is with all of this is that there has been, you know, like I, I, we've been talking about masks. I mentioned masks earlier on. And you're right about the fomites versus aerosol stuff is that if you followed expert advice, you would you would be, or if, if you'd followed expert advice from early on and still followed it, then you would be, washing your hands a lot and not wearing masks and that would be the exact wrong way around to do it um so it is it is very hard to get good to get good information because simply because there is not much good information and because the nature of um what's the word i'm looking for here Sci- like of scientific consensus i suppose or scientific um advice is that uh thank you uh, sorry, um, just momentary home thing going on there. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, where I got to? Um, yeah, the the nature of sort of the of mainstream scientific advice is that it has to go through so many hoops. So like you know the, the CDC or the MHRA uh, or something will, will will if it hasn't got really good RCT data on something, it will it will it will say there is no evidence that X works. And when it says there's no evidence that X works, it sort of it's it sort of it sort of it sort of takes that to mean this doesn't work and you shouldn't do it. So you can't have RCTs on there aren't any good RCTs on masks. Uh, so even though there's good theoretical reasons to think they do, the, we, the, the, there was just a lot of people saying they don't work. We should just not do them. And then that got into the media. So that became so there's already it's even at the sort of at the start, even before you get to who you should trust in the media, there is a um, uh, it's just difficult to get good numbers and the and the way these numbers are presented is not as a sort of here's our best guess but is the these the the media the um scientific establishment saying we we haven't got enough evidence to say this works therefore we say it doesn't work and i think you know that has been a problem for things like um uh, ventil- you know for masks or t- attempting to ventilate spaces and things where, where, where the the, the sort of cost benefits analysis way of going about things would be to say this there's good theoretical reasons to think this works we don't know what the evidence is the evidence isn't good yet but it's a low cost intervention we should start doing it and it might have an effect so that you've already got problems like that then who do you trust in the media <sighs> well 
that's incredibly complicated. I remember Ben Goldacre saying years ago, either you become an expert in everything or you learn who to trust. And uh, the trouble is, I could tell you, you trust people like me and you trust people like, um, I don't know, uh, my, my uh, Stuart Ritchie, who writes for the um, uh, for Unheard regularly, is a, um, is a psychologist at, at King's, but he's also really done data uh, data savvy sort of scientists who can look at the look at the numbers and draw out the ways in which these things uh, work and it, it, uh, you follow people like that who you can trust on numbers but if you if you don't know numbers how do you how do you trust them um so this is a, a long way of saying that I, I, I suppose what some rules of thumb are or a rule of thumb that occurs to me uh, almost as I'm talking is that if, if you follow someone or you see someone's work and you look back and they always seem to be, have one big idea that they stamp onto everything. This is, you know, it's always the, the, uh, you know, the liberal elite screaming about things, or it's always, we, you know, lockdowns have gone too far. Or it's always, then you should probably think, okay, they are not carefully assessing each new piece of information, but are rubber stamping each bit that comes along with their, with their, um, sort of pre-established beliefs for it whereas someone who could say who's saying uh, on the one hand you know the uh, um, masks have these negative impacts we don't know enough about the data but on the other hand the cost they, they, they seem to be low cost so we should try them or you know perhaps we have gone too far with you know uh, who, who, who seems to be who seems to be sort of taking the um, each piece of information individually and sort of trying to fit them into a larger picture and accepting that things are complicated I'd be much more willing to trust them um, in a there is a specific piece uh, that, like I, I, in my first book, which I um, haven't mentioned, was called the, the Rationalist Guide to the Galaxy, and it's about a bunch of people who sort of ner- like a massive nerdy bunch of people called the Rationalists who are called the Rationalists, and they and they who uh, sort of ga- gather around this um, these various blogs like Slate Star Codex and things, and and interestingly, they they they're a group of people who worry about very much about AI taking over the world and worry about all uh, uh, all these things. But they have been really interesting because they absolutely think in this sort of data-led, very sort of cost-benefit analysis, sort of Bayesian reasoning sort of way. And from very early in the pandemic, they were saying we should be much more we should be much more wary about masks. Um, it, it is you know right when back in January last year when it was um, still in um, China and everyone and you know the mainstream media, for want of a better word, was still saying you shouldn't, shouldn't worry about the coronavirus, you should worry about the flu and things like that. They were saying, no, we should absolutely worry about coronavirus and because, look, exponential growth is a real thing and it goes very quickly. And I, I, I think, so I think you, you need to be, they, they have been well ahead of it. And I think if you, if you, um, if you are, if you're interested in a, a short, a short answer to the question, who should I trust? Go and find them. Go and follow people like Scott Alexander um Eliezer Yukowski, uh uh what's her name um Kelsey Piper at Vox who are very um who, who are really data-led very data-savvy people who that and, and have were thought, thought in the right way about this from very early on so and uh, I, I don't know if that if that that more specific answer is helpful but I think they've been really really useful. Steve did you want to come in? Yeah just a quick follow-up because my um, rule of thumb, and probably rule of thumb of lots of people who don't know this as well as you do, Tom, would think, well, if I'm hearing from a scientist, I can probably trust them. Um, and I've followed Unheard's interviews, particularly around lockdown, they call it lockdown TV, of course. Hmm. Um, and lots of, uh, to my mind, very credible scientists saying quite different things about those 
quite key questions. So some, there's this whole group around the, I believe it's called the Great Barrington Declaration, who thought there was a better way, I think, around sheltering vulnerable around coronavirus Mm. rather than society-wide lockdowns. Um, And I suppose the difficult thing is when you hear different, seemingly very credible scientists saying quite different things, that's when it gets really hard to pick apart. Mm. And there's an impression I've had is where the Telegraph are going to promote one group of those scientists and the Guardian will promote a different group of scientists. So getting to kind of what the consensus view is, I think, is that that's what I found tricky. You know, how much credence should I have given to these scientists who disagree a bit? Like with climate change, as I say, it's pretty clear that anyone, any scientist questioning that is really right out on the sort of extremes. But with this pandemic, it felt like I wasn't quite sure where to find the middle ground, um, partly because I didn't really trust perhaps this um, uh, particular government as much as I would. I think in the past I would have gone for the government advice, but I, I worried about that being more politicised than it would be in the past as well. So I wondered if Tom had any reflections on, on that. So can we just trust scientists or do we need to take their um, comments also with a degree of uh, a pinch of salt? Well, I think, I think you absolutely have to because, I mean, you can't just trust all scientists because then you'd believe about five different things at once. Um, five mutually... I mean even to get away from the sort of really big sort of big ticket issues about, you know, the um, Great Barrington Declaration and whether or not it's, a, you know, various people saying it's a case-demic and it's all false positives and so on, which I think was, there's a lot of, there was, in, in those things, there was a lot of sort of somewhat nuanced but uh, headline-seeking stuff said by reasonably credible scientists, which then got swept up into less nuanced and somewhat stupid ways of saying you yeah, actually it's all it's all false positives there's no real disease going around whatever but even if you look at much less controversial things like school um I, you know the i've been trying to trying to work out in my own limited abilities my own limited abilities the impact of schools on things and i've found that i will speak to one group of scientists who just say well it's extremely obvious that it has this profound effect on art and this other group of scientists interestingly i, I find that it's much more tends to be pediatricians, pediatric infectious disease specialists, people who work on pediatric specialties are much more willing, to, are much more likely to say no. Uh, the um, schools reflect the, uh, the community spread rather than driving it, and they aren't a, they aren't a major factor in uh, transmission. Now, I have been unable to get to a satisfactory position on this because uh, I think there, there are lots of different studies that contradict each other. You, 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 um, the, the, ideal, the ideal situation, right, is that it uh, doesn't matter, you know, nullius and verba, it doesn't matter who says what, you can look at papers and you can interrogate them and you can say, well, the data shows this and it doesn't matter whether scientist A says this or scientist B says this. That, 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 would, be the, that would be the ideal situation. Obviously, practically speaking, it doesn't work because... I am not an expert simultaneously in pediatric infectious disease, uh, you know, uh, epidemiology or in virology or in, well, you know, or climate, you know, climate atmospheric physics or whatever, you know, I, I can't, I can't assess everything. And uh, I'm just not that, uh, not uh, that good with numbers and reading science papers to be able to do those things. So I have to speak to scientists and I have to then trust them and try and, um, uh, or at least try and assess whether, how much I trust them and then try and exp- express that to the, um, to the uh, public as, as to the best of my ability. But then the, um, when you have things like these sort of disagreements, I mean, you, you can find a study to say 
closing schools hugely affects our. You can find a study that to say that it, uh, closing schools has precisely zero effect on our. I remember one meta-analysis found that you could get um, that studies literally saying anything from slightly, ne- you know, to having a slightly negative impact to, uh, to you know, to actually making the situation worse to hugely, uh, hugely reducing this, the um, spread of the disease. And I, I, in that situation, who, who do I as a, you know, just some guy who speaks to people and writes it down, how do I decide what, what is the re- real story there? And I, I think to some degree, you know, you, you just, you, you have to sort of, t- well, I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I, th- I think there's going to be a certain amount of who do I trust, a certain amount of, say, of like honestly saying, look, this is really complicated. This is, uh, there, there, there are reasons to think other. And there, you know, you have to sort of, it is okay to say you don't know and to, to say there, this is um, more complicated than I'm, uh, than, than can be judged at this point. Hopefully when I'm, I'm really looking forward actually to, schools going back on March the 8th and nothing else significant changing in our lockdown regime for a few weeks afterwards, because I think that will allow us a good chance of seeing what the impact is. And I think that, but, but it is, it has just been an awful lot of, you you just have to sort of sometimes say, I, I don't, I don't know this. I don't, I can't, I can't find out what is, what is the reality. I can just express uncertainty. I can just express that it is complicated. I think with other a lot of the things, the Great Barrington Declaration stuff. I think a lot of that. Again, I think it, I think like I was much more confident saying that was just wrong because I think that you you kept seeing the same names cropping up, right? You kept seeing um, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and uh, Gosh uh, Sunil uh, Gupta and um, Carl Hennigan, and there was you know that, that who I'm sure are all excellent scientists. I don't want to denigrate them at all but you know you can be wrong as a scientist um and if then there is a sort of selection process in which the ones who happen to to be wrong in a particular interesting way get selected by the media to be the figurehead of that particular thing a lot then you will see those you will tend to see those wrong those people being wrong a lot um whereas on the other side if you will if you, if you want to be that crude about it then you tend to see lots and lots of different names because there are lots and lots of different people who think that no actually um shielding the vulnerable isn't plausible and that uh the you know, <laughs> the pandemic is real and that there you know all these other uh not not that jay Bhattacharya or anyone like that doesn't think it's real i shouldn't i shouldn't be uncharitable but i think if you know that, that is that you know it was the same with climate change if you keep seeing the same four or five names, and I um, can't remember any of them, I can't remember them, who, who any of them were now, but they tend to be Australian geologists as a broad rule. Um, you see them come, cropping up again and again, whereas obviously there are tens of thousands of atmospheric physicists and uh, oceanographers and people who work in relevant disciplines saying, no, climate change is real, and almost just doing their work without having to talk about it. And if you go and look at any, if you go and pick any, random scientific paper out it will be will not only be saying climate change is real it won't have to say that it'll just be and as we as since we can see that the the, the the seas are warming we will then do some science around that rather than it being a you know it being an assumption in the science almost rather than a sort of political declaration you have to make so i think that is one rule of thumb um which is that if you keep seeing if you keep seeing the same four or five names cropping up saying the controversial the sort of contrarian thing then there's a good chance that you're only seeing those few names for a reason because the media keeps picking them out to make them the faces of the of uh 
plausible skepticism, whereas actually the the vast bulk of uh, the scientific community on that topic um, holds the much less exciting, much less contrarian, no, this is a real problem view. Thanks, Tom. So I wonder if we can move on to politics and policy, because this sounds like a really good time to me to, to talk about how you put that uncertainty and those divergent views into practice. So given everything that you've just said and the sort of qualifications that you've sort of set out, what do you think about the government's claim to have followed the science? And given the uncertainty, is the caution that they are exercising in the current lockdown plan justified? I think the caution in the current, I think the current lockdown or the route out of lockdown, I, I think is from, from my limited <clears throat> understanding, but from speaking to people and uh, I think it is as, you know, you, you it, it is, if, if it's erring on anything, it's erring on the side of sailing too close to the wind rather than on, the side of, uh, of you know reckless um, sorry of, of, of over caution you know being over cautious I think the um, <clears throat> if you read if you looked at the modelling um, I think it was the Sage minutes um, referring to the Warwick and Imperial models they were saying like we don't know <clears throat> we don't know the impact of say opening schools on R. Uh, and if you're doing a scientific experiment, what you ought to do is change one variable and uh, see what effect that change that variable has before you change the next variable. So to get a clear image, a clear, a clear sort of signal of what change, what a change will do, uh, the changing a particular policy will have on the R value, you need to wait at least three and probably more like four or five weeks after changing something before you change before you, before you'll see the uh, impacts clearly, and then then you change other things. And I think it is. <clears throat> So they're opening schools on March the 8th, uh, plus a couple of other hopefully relatively minor things. And then they are opening, they're they're making a few other fairly minor changes on March 29th, three weeks later, which I hope they aren't, but won't have any significant effect. But then there there aren't any real changes till April the 12th, I think, which when you get sort of opening of non-essential shops and so on. And then... you need to have that time. You need to have four or five weeks to see what the impact of the first lot were. So, because otherwise you'll, you won't be ever, ever able to see what the, you know, what's, what's going on and whether you're moving too quickly. So I think that it is absolutely suitable caution. I also, um, I'm just really relieved that the, um, cause the government has had, it has had a lot of, uh, it's had a real tendency to overpromise. Um, or to sort of uh, wish things away, and you know, um, uh, say, "Oh, things will be things will be great in a few weeks." You know, it, it'll, we're coming out of it by Easter. We're coming out of it by Christmas. We can have Christmas back. All these sort of things. You know, these it really wants to tell everyone good news. And actually, the sensible thing to do would have been to say, "We will try and get a bit of Christmas back for everyone, but it might not be safe because of the uh, you know we don't know what the thing is doing." So I think this bit is really been heartening in this situation to see that they are they've learned not to say hey everything will be great in a few weeks but say no actually things are really hard now hopefully things will get better and we will allow things to open up you know um, when as things as things come along i think i think it has been much better than their previous uh methods of sort of saying uh, everything will be fine everyone and 
and here have some money to go and eat in a badly ventilated restaurant you know i i am um, i i hope that they don't do the well, on the east house help out things specifically i hope they don't bring that one back but the uh more broadly i i think there's been a a, a sort of a, le- a gradual learning that you, you the, the virus is not something you can make do press releases about and it has you have to sort of it or doesn't timetable itself to convenient political timetables and so you have to sort of say we will m- work each pr- bit out as it goes along um but yeah so, so I, i'm i'm very happy with the somewhat cautious coming out of lockdown so uh, the way they've done it and what do you think of the specific followed the science claim well um I don't. I. 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 I think it's a sort of. It's a almost like from a sort of philosophical point of view. It's a really interesting thing whether it's something you can do to follow the science. You can't. Science doesn't give you a goal. You know, it doesn't say this is what human flourishing is. Um, yeah, it does, it's not as if you can. Um, uh, science will say this is this is what humanity wants, and this is the best. This what you know. It, all all you can get with science is. This is what you want to achieve. This is what we want to achieve. What is the best way of doing? It? You know, if we if we say we want to achieve zero COVID, you could look at the number of <clears throat> not the best way of achieving that through science. Or if you want to say, you know, we wanted to we want to minimise the number of number of deaths, so we want to minimise the number, you know, the number of qualities lost or anything like that. You can you can plug in an out, an output that you want, an outcome rather that you want, to, and, and then get science to provide you with the best uh, the, or rather modeling i suppose we're really talking about the best, uh, to find the most the, the best way to achieve that aim or the, you know what will and it can get you can get ask science to tell you what will happen to some degree if, if with various things you do but you can't really plug in you can't say we're following science and the science tells us that the best thing to do is <clears throat> uh, reduce the number of qualities that's that you know that the qualities lost or whatever that's not how it works i think there is that said to the degree that there is sort of consensus on what we want out of uh, our pandemic response or our climate response or anything else, you know, the, then then you can say we we all agree that we want the fewest number of people to die or the number fewest number of qualities lost when you you know when you um, take into account both uh, economic damage and um, uh, the, the cost of the virus and this this route is the best way to do that as far as the science can tell us. Um, I think. I think they have done, they, they've, I think there was a lot of, uh, like I said a minute ago, I think there's a bit, there was a lot of sort of over-optimistic, well, we can, we can say we're following science, but actually then tell people to go and uh, eat, eat out in restaurants or we can tell people to go and mingle at Christmas. And I think there have been, you know, I think those, that, that was not following the science, I think. But I, having said, and having said that, I do think they were, they, they, they obviously have been paying attention to things like the imperial modelling, and they, it's not as if they've been just willy-nilly ignoring everything. They, 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 I think, I think you can, they can make a reasonable claim that they have had significant scientific input into their into their uh, policies. I think also they, they, there's obviously been a bit of a battle in. This is where I I leave my field of expertise and I'm just some voter venting. So you know, feel free to jump in and stop me if I'm. Uh, being silly or anything, but the, uh, there's obviously been some battle within government between the sort of Rishi Sunak, we can't, you know, the, the, the end of things, who's saying we want to, we can't, they can't afford that, can't afford this. We need to carry on struggling on um, and put up with the virus. And then there's the sort of the Matt Hancock end saying, you know, actually the, um, the virus is real. We need to lock down until we get the vaccines. And I think 
um, I, I would I would suggest that the insofar as following the science is a real thing, that the, the Hancock, Hancockian end of that is closer to following the science. I think also has been vindicated by the speed of the vaccines, and he has. It's, yeah, like, no, no, this government has not covered itself in glory, but I think he is one of the few that's come out of it with a reputation enhanced because he did spot early on that you know this is the this is not going away until we get vaccines and invested heavily in getting uh, vaccines to the people as quickly as possible. And I think, yeah, so I, I, so I, I, I don't, I don't know if that's following the science exactly, but it seems the most science informed and sort of science literate approach to it of anyone in the government. And I think it has ended up uh, with the, the vaccine response being remarkably effective. And that is, you know, thank God for that. Right. So let's just finish by talking about how all of this, and all of the things that we've talked about from the existence of the virus to the lockdown debate and sources of information and the politics, how has it affected our confidence in science and scientists? And I'd like to, for both of you to um, to sort of discuss this if you've got something to contribute. But Tom, do you want to start on the, the reputation and our confidence in science and scientists? Well. Uh, how it has affected, um, but, you know, this, that, that is a, as an empirical question. As a, <clears throat> what I should say is let's have a look at the data, and I, I don't know what the data is. I would be surprised if it is not, you know, it's, it's brought scientists right to the fore. It's put them in positions of enormous authority, standing, flanking the prime minister, you know, um, discussing on all the media the, uh, the, the, these sort of important uh, you know the, the future of the nation, basically, and I, it would amaze me if it has not added some significant cachet to uh, the sort of authority of science and scientists in general, and you know epidemiologists and immunologists in particular, and vaccine scientists. Um, how should it have done? Is the question because I think there are things like we were talking about earlier. There's there are very obvious places in which not individual scientists exactly but scientific consensus and scientific establishment advice and knowledge has really let everyone down and i think that has been i mean partly you know the the early on the uh decision that we couldn't uh you know we just you know for example behavioral the behavioral science told us all that we couldn't um lockdown you know the british british society wouldn't accept lockdowns like china had done it wouldn't be if we couldn't lock down too early because we'd get behavioral fatigue and i mean that turned out you know like that that's the sort of claim that you need to be really confident about before you start saying and that is why we won't lock down for two weeks and uh, which while the virus is spreading exponentially in our you know or a week or whatever while well, the virus is spreading exponentially and i don't think that was well-founded i don't think there was much good behavioral science that backed any of that up i think it was a lot of conjecture and so that was bad i think the um this thing we were discussing earlier on about how the um the masks debate and so on that there was people people mistook the phrase there is no good evidence for masks working but good evidence they're meaning you know randomized control trials and they took that to mean masks don't work and then the advice went out to not wear masks and so on and actually that was bad because that meant the people didn't wear masks and spend all their time washing their hands till they bled which had very little effect as far as we can tell and i think both of those things probably cost some non-trivial number of lives right those are <clears throat> those are those are 
failings. There were failures. Having said that, like the, if we had done this without scientific advice, it would have been an awful lot worse. And then there is, you know, I think the the, the sort of pharmaceutical research, the vaccine research, I mean, that has been astonishing, just astonishing. And I think they, um, the sort of, they're generally the sort of genetic, the, the speed with which gen, the, the, the virus was um, uh, a gene sequenced and the, sequen- the gene, uh, genomic sequence was sent around the world and everyone was making vaccines in a few days and vaccines were in it. You know, the, the sheer speed at which this stuff happened was absolutely astonishing and i think it is it certainly is a is a reminder that we are absolutely um sorry just a couple of ping messages there on the yeah, so the, uh, yeah the, the, so i think that should absolutely um uh, enthuse enthuse us sort of you know, boost our, our faith in science because i think science the, the workings of it and sort of medical technology and scientific technology in general has transformed human life every generation forever and i think it's just continuing to do so so yes i I, so how should it affect our confidence in scientists i think it should be we should be careful about um dividing the good science and the bad science and that is of course of the good sides of science and the bad sides of science and of course that is a complicated question which uh, i haven't really helped you answer does that does that help at all absolutely thanks and steve have you got any thoughts in closing yeah, yeah, and I'll do do quick closing thoughts. Tom, I think I completely agree with your characterization. Clearly, this pandemic has reminded us how much we need science, and the vaccine development, I think, has been amazing. There is a bit of a question there about if we can do it that quickly for this vaccine, what about others? What about other kinds of treatment? And I think there's a whole question there why it was so quick. But that's probably a different podcast. My My reflection was that it's made me... Um, think even more highly of the scientific process, but it has exposed some of foibles in things like how our government receives scientific advice, which I thought and actually wrote about being really strong at the beginning of the pandemic. I think there's been some questions asked about that at the end of all this. And equally, like you alluded to, Tom, some individual scientists perhaps are promoting their own kind of theories, their their sort of uh, views of this all perhaps ahead of the kind of healthy scepticism that we'd want from science so that that was my overall takeaway but i think i'm on similar page to tom there great well in that case i'd like to thank steve very much for your time and tom i'd like to thank you very very much for taking the time to join us today because i think that's been an absolutely fascinating run through of some of the issues around science the presentation of science the politics around the use of science and i just think some really really good issues on something that a year ago i don't think any of us would have conceived of the importance of that matrix between science scientific conclusions the communication of those conclusions and the implementation of them in policy decisions so uh Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time and for joining us. Thank you very much. A pleasure. And just to echo that, thank you, Tom. It's been fascinating. Great. Brilliant. So thank right. you, Tom. Thank you, Cheers, Steve. Guys. Thank you to all our uh, listeners. And this has been the No Man's Land podcast. Please join us again in future. Thank you for your time and goodbye. <laughs>